0: hello beautiful people welcome to the podcast articulating a bi-weekly podcast where we will center and continue to cultivate the stories of black and brown people who are negotiating independent school culture and where they go from here. My name is Gina Parker Collins. I am the mom of two independent school scholars and founder of Resources in Independent School Education, better known as RISE. And I'm coming to you from somewhere in my house in New York.
1: Ooh, yes. And my name is Sam Osborne. I'm an independent school alum, RISE volunteer, and creative. I was previously a New York City fundraiser living in Brooklyn, and now I am pursuing my MBA at the Wharton School of Business. And we're here to talk about the challenges, celebrate the wins, and introduce you to some really great folks you need to know about.
0: Independent schools can open up a world of opportunity and careers for students of color. But what about creative careers? On today's episode, we chat with designer and indie school alum Mapate Diop about his path from attending Riverdale Country School to launching the streetwear brand
1: Diop. Mapate Diop is a Detroit-based fashion designer who's raised more than $100,000 for social justice causes and COVID-19 relief efforts through the sale of his company's batik-printed masks. He articulated with us about his independent school experience, West African-inspired clothing line, and the importance of community. We are thrilled to share that articulating is officially on iTunes and Spotify. Simply search Articulating, an independent school podcast, hit subscribe, and enjoy. Thanks for listening.
2: So I'm calling you from uh, every New Yorker's favorite city, Chicago, Illinois. Um, my co-founder Evan is in uh, Detroit. Uh, our head of product is in Philadelphia. And then we have uh, one intern in Boston, another in Oakland, and then another in Miami.
0: You have, oh. a, Philly, you have a Philly girl right here with, with uh,
2: Sam. She's right oh. in Philly. What part, what part of Philadelphia?
1: Um. Well, I'm a student here. I'm from Brooklyn. Um, so I don't claim it. All right. <laughs> and this is just two years later, right? The Since little, the inception?
2: Yeah, a little under three years. Wow. So how are you managing the, the rush? Uh, just like, again, just like everyone else, you know, we're we're really lucky to still be able uh, to do what we do, um, and we feel very fortunate because that's just been taken away from so many people. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the um, very prudent things, uh, Evan, my co-founder, uh, I met Evan, uh, and, I, let me know if I'm stepping on anything that's going to go on to the podcast because this is part of the story. Um, but okay. so after uh, college, I joined a program called Venture for America, it's like Teach for America, but instead of teaching for two years, you work at uh, a startup, a nonprofit, a social enterprise. Uh, for two years uh, there are a lot of different businesses or organizations and a bunch of places all over the country that you know need a lot of talent and need a lot of help but they can't afford to go recruit colleges they can't compete with your google's your Goldman Sachses, whomsoever uh, and so vfa which was founded by Andrew Yang, who will unfortunately now be the mayor it looks like uh, he uh, basically 18 cities across the country, you know, Detroit, Baltimore, St. Louis, Cleveland, to get young people to go work there. So I was working for a software company. Evan, my friend, now co-founder, was working for a tea and beverage company. He was the second employee there. I was the eighth employee uh, at my organization. Uh, and that's where we first met. And we were just sort of in that ecosystem learning about small businesses and learning about startups. And it was a year in that we we got started in earnest uh, on Diop, on, on like formally.
1: So then, um, what was that? You know, that's obviously a huge departure from what you were previously doing. What were previously your long term goals before uh, entrepreneurship?
2: Uh, prior to that, uh, well, entrepreneurship was, and I still really don't consider myself uh, an entrepreneur. I never studied it. Uh, Evan and I, neither of us uh, have ever been in the fashion industry. We've never. We weren't trained in fashion um this is still as far as i know our first venture um so we still don't even really consider ourselves entrepreneurs we just kind of figure out the business uh, part of that i don't know just because we're so young i mean we've had a job and a half between us Uh, I'm 26 and Evan's 27. Uh, So it was still still too soon to tell. We we actually really quite liked our jobs. Uh, Evan joined as the second employee of his company. And by the time he left, uh, it was up to six. I was the eighth employee at my company. And by the time I left, it was up to 40. uh, And I was helping them build out their entire business development plan and their playbook. So we were just focused on learning a lot, really. That um, sounds
1: like entrepreneurship, too. So that's interesting you're not claiming, you're not owning that.
2: Yeah. yeah, we just were focused on learning as much as we can, as much as we could. There wasn't any like set design, like milestone.
0: Well, instead of instead of calling it entrepreneurship, what would you call it?
2: Uh, well, it is, I guess, it, I mean, it is entrepreneurship, but I, I I'm, uh, the reason I shy away from that is it's not entrepreneurship in the way most people think about it. Um, in part, so D, like not like,
1: tech or not tech or something that's like high growth or,
2: okay. Yeah. In part due to startups, in part due to Shark Tank, people like the scale. People either think you're making zero money or like ten million dollars, um, and people don't understand. And people hate when I say this because they think I'm downplaying it, but it's the truth. Uh, we're we're a cash flow business. We're no different than your local coffee shop or dry cleaner. Like it's you keep cash, you keep more cash coming in than is going out. Uh, and in our sort of business, like you're not profitable for five, six, seven, or eight years. We're we're a bootstrap company. We've never raised money. We don't intend to fundraise, and we've turned down offers of fundraising because we said, look, we're not going to return 10x whatever it is you give us. This is this this is basically this is basically like a mom and pop shop, but it's just run online. And so when you're trying to explain that, I also like to say, you know, we're not in the clothing business. We're in the people business. Our job's not to sell clothes; it's to manage people's expectations. That's part of managing people's expectations. So that's why I try to explain to people like the secret sauce isn't that we're doing something special. We reinvented the wheel like any of that sort of stuff this is just a very prudently run small business fascinating yeah. you're in the people
0: business
2: Every, everyone is in the people business yes um, yes but i'm i use that to kind of illustrate that that's that's that's, that's that is what we do all day. like it's it, it will also say like it's not the clothes it's how they make you feel and and what you do in them that matters and that's about people that's not about products
1: no, and I, I the reason I followed up was because obviously there's always that concern with um, Black business owners, um, the almost imposter syndrome that you know you can't be considered, you know, an entrepreneur. But it's interesting your approach to it, and w- which I respect. Um, but I, I would be interested to know because I think one of the threads we wanted to explore here was. The comfort you have um, at twenty six um, to be the head of a business. so so what are what concerns or anxieties float through your head?
2: Uh, well on the on the business side, and I'll be brief about this. On the business side, it's the same as it always is, you know, it's always thinking, who is this for? Um, why would they like this? How do we get them to come back? Um, how do we reach them? How do we talk to them? That's an ongoing concern. That was the hardest part very early on when you were just starting out um, because we had an idea and then we turned it into an item. We weren't sure that item was a product. Uh, we figured out it was a product. And then really that transition from how do you take a product to a business and then grow that business? That product to business part was very, very tricky. And you realize that that's just an ongoing challenge. Uh, otherwise the the real challenge is, you know uh how do we you know how do we continue to stay true to and articulate our values as a business uh how do we continue to do right by our customers how do we keep uh discussing and you know supporting things that we care about um we've been very fortunate uh, over uh because in part due to the mask and some other things uh we've been able to raise over hundred fifty thousand dollars for 100 different uh covid relief uh, initiatives and organizations not just in detroit and southeast michigan uh, but the midwest and nationally everything from food insecurity uh to housing advocacy to uh civil rights to prison reform and things like that so how do we keep uh you know those initiatives going um it it really is uh, it's it's two sides it's both you know how do you you know keep the business running up and running uh, and then how do you continue to articulate your values through through that business
1: uh you just threw a lot of um numbers yeah. at us that were um that kind of knocked the air out of me so mazel to you and your growing team yes. Describe your family.
2: Sure. Uh, So I'm uh, the youngest of three. Uh, My parents have been split uh, since I was five. Uh, Both of my parents are college professors. Uh, They met in graduate school uh, at uh, Berkeley. My mom was getting her PhD in uh, sociology, and then my dad was getting his PhD in English. And my my mom currently teaches uh, American studies, or studies in African studies, and then my dad teaches uh, comparative literature. Um, so it's not necessarily that they are creative people in my house, it's just there's a lot of books in my house uh, and particularly there's a lot of art and a lot of literature in my house. So that was something that was very important, mostly. It was really reading. And then I have two older siblings. Uh, my oldest sister, uh, she's a project manager, although she was an accountant uh, by trade, um, and now she's a project manager. And then my older brother uh, is a software developer uh, for IBM. Um, and so he works on software. And I always like to say the only real professional advice that my parents had ever given, given to all of us was like, you, you, pro- you probably shouldn't go into academia um, just because they knew what it was like uh, for them. And they're like, you should be able to apply yourself to other things. Like, school is important and reading is important, um, but you should try, always try other things. So that was that was always the real impetus in my house, it was just like, read and like, try things.
0: So, would you say, Mapate, that um, your creativity came through that? you know um opportunity that your parents gave you to not just do well academically
2: but to be creative 100 because they and i mean this is probably the thing i admire most about my parents is that they they knew what they wanted to do from a very young age they went straight from college to graduate school to being ta's to being adjuncts to being assistant professorship. so they've only ever I've um, always been teaching for 30 years but she'd only ever been in school my father also has been teaching for 30 years they also only ever better in school and so they have only ever really worked with young people. Uh, and so that was just a very common pattern that they saw It's like oh there's plenty of people that uh, do well academically there's plenty of reasons to you know be smart be clever be all of these things but they always stress to me that you know the real difference maker and when it comes to trying new things being creative it's really it's patience and discipline and, I, and even running a business I think it's true i, I people come to us uh, all the time they say you know how do you run a business and how do you run a business? Well, I said, you know, being clever helps and all these other things, but it really is about patience and and discipline, which is why you see so many people who are able to do so many different things and come from so many different backgrounds uh, to be able to work creatively, work independently and start businesses. So 100%.
1: So you didn't have the, say, the uh, stereotypical uh, helicopter parent that a lot of us with immigrant families uh sort of telling us okay you're gonna do this you're gonna do that and you better get straight a's and you better do xyz
2: no and on the contrary my mom would say like me and my, my sister is a bit of a different case i think it's because she's the eldest but she say, yeah you and her brother weren't difficult to motivate and i think the two kind of key factors is, both of my parents grew up middle class uh, my mom's from nigeria and then my father's from senegal um, my grandfather my paternal grandfather uh i believe he although like historically they were fishermen my paternal grandfather was a journalist and then my maternal grandfather was like a public official, like a bureaucrat. Uh, and then the other thing is like they're intellectuals. Like they came to the United States for graduate school. They had already been to college. They had already traveled a lot. Um, so financially, so financially there wasn't very much stress on the family. Uh, and then just also as intellectuals, like they're. Although they they love traditions, orthodoxy, dogma, like that's that they're not they're not much for that. Their job is knowledge production, so their job is all often to challenge those sorts of things and challenge those sorts of norms and those sorts of conventions. Um, and specifically with my mom's work with regard to American studies and women's studies and gender studies, um, that's something that she thinks a lot about in her work. So I, it it makes sense that it would also apply personally uh, about sort of carrying those things down. So
0: can we move over to or move back to
2: Riverdale? 100%. <laughs> I've got so- my. Uh, on, what year? See.
0: What year were you at Riverdale?
2: I was at Riverdale years 2000, and I got my little Riverdale poster. Uh, okay. 2007.
1: Yeah, they <laughs> don't
2: give those out anymore. They don't do these anymore. I have, I have plenty of these. Yeah, you got uh, you got hacking on one side, and then you got the lower school. Okay. Um, I'm missing
1: yeah. something, but all right. Okay, merch.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, so yeah, Riverdale
0: can give out some decent merch. For
2: oh, sure. 100%, 100%. <laughs> I've, I've made many people jealous with, it, with the Riverdale merch. Yeah. Um, I was there from 2007. I came in the eighth grade to 2012. Uh, my year was notable for two reasons. That was uh, Dominic Randolph's first year. And that was, yes. also, that was also the first year they got rid of advanced placement. That was the big kerfuffle when I got there. And actually that's the reason is at the time i uh, I said I was not going to boarding school. I had considered uh, I had considered St. Anne's, and I had looked at collegiate. Collegiate was kind of no go because my mom didn't want me going to school with all boys. And then St. Anne's, I think my mom thought was a bit too flighty. That's actually why my mom really liked Riverdale. Is she's like it's like clearly this is a good school. Clearly these are smart people. But what it was the getting rid of this advanced placement that she's like they're not afraid to try new things. And it's like that's the kind of place where I would send my kids to
1: school. Oh, and what where were you coming from before that?
2: Uh, Prior to that, I was in a public school. I was, I had done the prep for prep program. Um, So yeah, I'm a prep alum. I was in contingent 29. Um, So I was coming from a public middle school uh, on Long Island.
1: Okay, wow.
2: We have some amazing prep
0: folks that we've had on as guests. So you have just been added to that illustrious
2: list. It's, It's a good company to be in, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's always such a difference between, say, you know, a a prep student. There's very basic, uh, subtle differences between, say, a prep student and some of these other placement programs, like, let's say, early steps where they join, say, around kindergarten, first grade. Um, I I think one of the biggest things is perhaps a a, a better sense of self or sense of identity. Did you feel that uh, entering Riverdale when you did?
2: Uh, 100% and you just get that from other seeing other prep people and having other prep people as mentors and even now as I get older because I mean it's it's it was now uh, going on 15 years ago that I started prep prep and they say prep is for life but then but then it's uh, but then there's people, they're still with you and just being able to see them in their journey and how they continue to mentor you and bring you along and see their steps 100%. And it's amazing to see that those people still have the the, uh, sense of self. And uh, just the idea that on a given day, I can wake up and I can open up like the New Yorker, the New York Times, and there's prep alums, or I can turn on TV and there's prep alums. And it's like, ah, yes, I knew that person back then. I knew this person from back then. And to see them and to see they still have such a strong sense of self, 100%. And I think that's the greatest gift that Prep Prep really gives you. And it also, and I think families will say that too, um, especially because the middle school period is very hard. Being a teenager, is very t- tricky, very difficult. Just that social transition is very difficult. I think they'll say that that's that's also a really key difference maker uh, between b- b- with Prep Prep as a program. It's, it's not just you know we take your academics seriously, but you know we take you seriously as a person. Uh, and you know why shouldn't you also take yourself seriously?
0: You bring up something really important. Uh... With regards to having that foundation, having that affinity, having that support group when you come in. Uh, I'm curious how a FETA program like PrEP prepared your family to show up and become engaged. You know, with RISE, that is the work that we do um, helping parents better advocate, navigate and negotiate these spaces to make sure A, they're safe spaces for their children, but also to network and to um, build consensus and, and have an impact on the culture of the independent school. And I've often found that um, families who are coming in from the Fita program, uh, I, we don't see, tend to see their parents as much on campus um, or engaging in our affinity groups. Um, and that might have everything to do with the fact that the students are a little bit older when they come to you know, independent schools, when you talk about middle school and upper school. Can you talk a little bit about how your parents um, engaged and were there any challenges in, in showing up and participating and helping to influence and impact the culture?
2: Up from where I sit, um, I don't think my mom would say she had too many issues, but I think she'd make the same observation um i'm and i probably characterize this down to you uh and i think this is kind of the point at which i have to kind of like put it up just kind of lay it on on the table that i think there and when you see press coverage or when they read about prep or prep i'm glad that people acknowledge this that you know it is tough to have a program that does take uh children out of new york city public schools and puts them in independent schools and might leave those schools at a disadvantage um and uh, i think a, a lot of that i'd owe to the fact that like and like, that want to perhaps great strengths being in all five boroughs is just like it's the the, you know they're working class people (laughs) like the parents are working um like they're two three jobs every part of the city every sort of job you can imagine um my parents are college professors I had I was in a prep class with people whose parents were public school teachers people whose parents were sanitation workers with people whose parents were police officers you name it it runs the gamut it was the breath of New York City um so I think so I think on the one level there's that, that's like they're working and so there's only really so much to go around. But then at the same time, what also attracts um, people who are serious about their kids' ac- academics, pe- people who are serious about their kids' educations. What's, what's great about a program like PrEP is it doesn't pathologize black people or Hispanic people or Asian people. It doesn't say, oh, these people care about their kids less and then come in and say, hey, we're going to teach you how to do it. It's like, no, no, we, we know you take your kids' education seriously. We are also people as educators who will also take your kids seriously. And in all these other places and all these other spaces that these kids exist, whether it is their public schools, whether it is this, whether it is that, and they're not getting the right opportunities or they're not being treated properly or they're not being put in a position to succeed, we're going to do that too uh and that's what continues to be i mean prep's been around 30 years that's what continues to be attractive about the program and that's why it's so widespread and that's why you see them uh, everywhere. Um, and then as far as impacting the culture of the independent schools, that's an ongoing, I wouldn't want to call it attention just because there is, again, now so much institutional knowledge, like Charles Guerrero is over at Fieldston; he and I still email, like, Charles that has known me since I was, like, this tall. You knew me when yeah, I was Yeah, we high. love Charles. We love um, so Charles. Incredible. He's yeah. just incredible and I've known him for such a long time. And so he just talks so much about the transition between, you know, prep and then the independent schools and even onto the colleges and how you're constantly negotiating those things even as the times uh, change. And so I, I'd like to Think that the influx of prep for prep students. Um, I, I joke now that like the prep network goes to the moon, like anywhere you got. I mean, I'm in Chicago, even now, the people who go to other schools to say, Oh, you're from New York. Oh, do you know those prep students? Always, when I was in training at jobs, when I talked to people, always said the prep people are all the New York City people always very sharp, the prep people always very, very sharp and always on their piece and cues. Um, so I think that's just an ongoing negotiation.
0: What about um, the relationship between prep students and students who have been, black and brown students who've been at independent schools since let's say kindergarten. Um, Do you recall um, any challenges in building relationships with students who were already enrolled in that independent school community?
2: And um, people in my sort uh, of age cohort, the 28, to 29 people who graduated in that 2010 to 2014 range, they'll always say that it was those students who really acculturated them and brought them under their wing at the school, whether it was a Riverdale or a horseman, or it was an LREI or something that was a little bit um, less formal and a little less stuffy, even out to the boarding schools, because they already, not only did they know how Uh, the school worked and the school culture, but because they themselves were othered in some way, because they themselves came from a different background, um, they could see sort of the gaps and they could see things to watch out for and things to look out for. So, um, and I'm sure you'd have to talk to people who now, and then even prior to that, when it was a little bit different, and even some of the teachers uh, at Riverdale, you know, uh, Priscilla Morales and Dwight Vidal, I'm sure it was different when they went to Riverdale in the early 2000s to late 90s. But I, I mean, I wouldn't have without I wouldn't have, you know, survived at Riverdale without those students. Um, I wouldn't feel, I could have excelled, or I wouldn't have felt that this was the place for me without those students.
0: Yeah, and they were waiting for you. Oh, right? 100%. My, my children who both started in kindergarten could not wait until the upper divisions when there would be more students that would be coming in that looked like them. And uh, Priscilla Morales, another great person, um, Riverdale alum and worked at Riverdale for a while and is now assistant head of
2: school at a school in Baltimore.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: And, and 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 because those students, those students are sharp too and they know, and it's also having students to look like them, to talk like them, like we are still in New York. Like it's, it's people that are also from the places they live, from the schools they've been to that like, Riverdale, while a lovely place might not necessarily look like your neighborhood, might not necessarily look like your family, might not necessarily look like, like your social circle. Well, on the one hand, I'm glad because it broadened my horizons. And I'd like to say I learned I Riverdale, I mean college, I say for this reason, like college is very much a breeze for me because it was really at Riverdale where you learn what is possible and you 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 see what's possible and that really opens your mind. But then when they see it, it's like, oh, this is this is confirmation. I still am in the Bronx and I still am in New York, is that there's other people who also have these same experiences who are also like me and are seeing the same things. i seeing and might be experiencing and feeling the same things I'm feeling.
1: I'd be interested to know then, and, you know, as you're talking, I'm aware you are Nigerian. Um, I was not aware of the term diaspora until college. And in fact, I just, you know, up until college, I thought of Black people as Black people, or I'm assuming that if you're at the independent school, you're Caribbean. Um, <laughs> did you has that since changed were you able to be Nigerian mapate
2: what's funny when you say that is that's changed where it did it, direction it's now that direction now like now, I think there's a much more global understanding of Blackness in which you go anywhere in the world, um, not just diaspora, but you go to the continent, you say this, you say that. Whereas before it might have been a little bit tense and people didn't really understand each other. I feel like there's a lot more dialogue across, okay, here's, you know, you have West Indians, but West Indians are connected to African Americans through this, are connected to Black people in Britain, Black people in France, Black people in these parts of the world, and Black people in Brazil and these parts of the world. So it's actually moved a lot more in that direction. Uh, I did, and I did feel that I was able to really share and celebrate my heritage. Um, My mom's Nigerian, and then my dad is Santa Glees, but I grew up in New York, and I'm a second generation American. Um, So I, I, and it's, again, it just the, one of the privileges of being in New York is just you can come from anywhere and then you're a New Yorker. And my mom will say all the time, like I'm Nigerian, but I'm still a New Yorker. And that she didn't during this whole thing, she hasn't left. I always like to joke like when the world ends, she'll just like be in metro diner drinking a coffee and like she'll f- for the first time in her life, she'll smoke a cigarette. She's like, this is how I intend to. So I've lived my life. This is how it's going to keep going. Um, so she loves New York. She can't quit it. Um, so I do, I do feel I, w- I was able to share that. And again, and this really speaks to, I think, Riverdale's culture of people bringing themselves to Riverdale, um, sharing the things that are important to them and really just in, in community w- with the values that you see at Riverdale. Um, and I think that's just the kind of culture that, that we really fostered.
1: Well, how are you expressing that then? Um, it, I, I'm not too familiar with Riverdale culture. Was there, um, could you do that through cost, uh, not costume, could you do that through uniform or through, um. Uh, socially, playdates, how are you doing it?
2: Uh, it was a number of things. So the shirts, um, I still have it. It's actually, well, that specific one that I wore at Riverdale is at my mom's house. But the prototype for what would become our first product was from a shirt my mom made me. And I used to wear those at Riverdale and people would ask me what those were. And <clears throat> my old Dean, Brian Carver, when I was on the phone with him uh, recently, he's like, I I remember you wearing these shirts uh, back when you were in school and you were so proud. And you talked about how your mom got them made for you, you talked about, you know, what they meant to you and being able to wear your identity and a piece of your heritage with you at school. And so that's on the one hand. And then also when it comes to, um, I know that the curriculum changed a little bit, but when it came to uh, advising, when it came to ILS, when it came to, different sorts of classes in which we would do projects that kind of took a little bit longer and projects that really involved having a personal perspective and really sharing your journey. I was really able to talk about um, my family. Uh, I was able to share you know, their journey and, and share. I remember Janice Warner's English class in the eighth grade. I did a whole project and presentation about my mom and about teaching. Um, I did something for history class too. So it was both inside and outside the classroom. There are always different ways to really express myself. And But then that was also a pedagogical tool. That was also a way for me to learn to be able to communicate and to be able to communicate ideas and be able to take what it is I'm learning and really apply it and see how it applies in my own life.
0: So Mapate, can you describe for us, since this is a podcast, what that shirt looked like, the shirt that your mother made that you were proud to wear, um, that spoke to your culture and that others were curious about? Describe what that shirt looked like.
2: Sure. so uh, so the most important thing to know is that it's made of ankara, which is a wax printed cotton fabric. Ankara itself, uh, it comes from a batik process. Uh, first appeared in Indonesia around the 1200s. Very, very simple, very basic process. You take cotton, uh, you bleach it. Well, you take cotton, you pick out the seeds, the impurities, you clean it, you bleach it, and then uh, I'm sorry, you clean it, you uh, bleach it, then you dye it, and then you let it dry. And the reason I explain that is because that is a pretty much the basic primitive way to dye cotton and every culture has them. If you look at Indigo in Japan, if you look at Pakistan, Mexico, Argentina, we have uh, customers from all over the place to say, oh, we do something similar in my country. I'm like, yes, because that's how you make colored cotton clothing. Um, And so it was the Dutch that brought the batik fabric from Indonesia to West Africa. Where it then became popularized. Now they do have their own sort of indigenous ways of uh, making fabric, and it, it, there's maps of different parts of Africa where they say, okay, this is how we make our own traditional fabric. But the wax print fabric with the bright colors and the bold patterns and the stuff we use that you might see in Harlem, you might see in Brooklyn, you might see in those places—that's sort of how that's made. So that's the most important thing to know: is that it's it's bright colors, bold patterns, and it's 100% cotton. The form of it is almost like a—it's like a cross between a tunic and a polo shirt. Uh, the polo shirt is because typically it's got a—it's got kind of a band collar, like around. Collar, and then it'll have two buttons right here. And then I say a tunic because it's it's an, it's an kind of a flared out sort of opening. If sunny is the first when we first had our first prototype and we'd send it around to people for feedback, the number one piece of feedback we'd get is these feel too much like scrubs. And so we actually had to end up slimming it down and we actually had to contour the sides to make people see that, oh, it's, it's really a shirt. Um, so that's the way in which I describe it is imagine a 100 percent cotton polo shirt, uh, but one that's uh, a little bit more loose on the bottom uh, and 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 kind of wears a little, wears a little bit breezier and a little bit looser.
0: So let me ask you, I'm dating myself here. I grew up in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the child of the civil rights movement. And- what section of the Bronx? And, oh, um, North Bronx, so Dorema Avenue. Oh, okay. No, yeah, okay, right, right next door to yeah. Mount Vernon, which I eventually moved to. But, you know, also um, grew up during the Black Power Movement. So we call similar shirts the Sheikis. I don't know if, in fact, that is, are they one and the same?
2: so that same idea um when uh they went in the late 60s when they first came up with dashikis that was the same idea it was basically seeing and it's funny because i literally where did this book just go Uh, i just put it down they just put out a a book from the un called title web in africa who he was a photographer who went around Africa in the 1950s and 60s taking photos when countries had gained independence if you look in those photos you'll see that they're wearing the early version of what would be dashikis uh, it's color it's colorful it's flowing it's almost like a um the dashiki form itself takes from a thobe which is actually arab um, because of that Arab influence in North Africa which is why it's uh, it tends to be very loose and hangable a little bit loose but the dyeing process and the colors um, because there are and and this is the indigenous influences there are some patterns that do in colors that do tell stories that's it's the same sort Sort of idea. Um, and actually when we, and we're like, okay, how do we actually market this to people? Well, we say it's it's kind of like a dashigi, but it's actually something that you'd feel more comfortable wearing, both in the sense that this product fits your lifestyle. So you can wear this to work. You can wear this to school and not feel like you're in costume. But then at the same time, this is a brand that reflects the world that you live in, which is to say, you might not necessarily share in this heritage, but it might be something that you're interested in, or you might know people who might be interested in this. So we, we really, we, when we come to marketing and sort of branding our product, we really thought about working from dashikis. Okay, how do we then put this in a modern context that doesn't feel forced or doesn't feel inauthentic or doesn't make people feel uncomfortable so what
0: so the masks the masks for covid yeah. did they come after diop was formalized or was 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 that diop from the beginning the
2: masks uh, that came after so we uh, yeah so uh 4th of July, uh, 2017, we're at a cookout. I'm wearing uh, the top my mom had made. Evan comes up to me and says, hey, that's a cool top. Where'd you get it? I explained that it's custom. Um, and then he's like, is there any way we can make that ourselves? Uh, we spent six months putzing around prototypes. That's driving to, we're in Baltimore. That's
0: like, driving wait a minute, in. wait a
1: minute, hold on. Just like that.
2: We're at a barbecue. You like yeah. my shirt. Uh, can, do you think we can do that? Can we just match that? one
1: does at barbecues. As yeah. one does at barbecues. <laughs> Ed, now Evan went to Riverdale too, right?
2: Evan did not. Uh, oh. Evan is Evan did not go to real Evan is from uh, Detroit, and then he went to Detroit Public Schools, and then he went to Michigan State. He did design for America, which led him to Venture for America. So that's how we met.
0: Okay, gotcha.
2: Uh, but what's funny is our head of product, Jack, went to Fieldston, so, and his yeah. his parents actually grew up two blocks two blocks away from me. So I was like, that's how
1: Japan. that works. Yeah,
2: I was like, what
1: like, yeah. Were you
0: like? Uh... Okay. Or you were like, you know what? I've been waiting for someone to, to, to recognize the gene.
2: No, I, 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 when I said, when you when I met, when I met Jack and he said, I wanted to work with this, I'm like, I'm like always, always on the ball, always, on always on the ball. He knows, you know, he knows, uh, and Jack and Jack's family, um, historically they worked. Uh, although they're Jewish, they worked in manufacturing and textiles. So his family business was subcontracting and working with all these different factories to make to make goods. Um, because the, his family, um, and his family like his family has roots in the garment district on 7th Avenue and the Avenue of Fashion. That's what they did historically. So I'm like, oh, this, this makes sense, which is also like a very New York thing to explain to people.
0: And a very independent school thing, too. I mean, very, that is one of the world does open up, you oh, know, right. um, and there are opportunities to meet people who just so happened to do some work in the garment district, right? You know, so it 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 made sense.
2: One hundred percent. Yeah, and Jack had graduated. Jack graduated uh, from Fieldston in twenty eleven. So we had never crossed paths as independent school students because he was a year ahead, of a year ahead of me. But I knew a lot of I knew a lot of his friends, and he knew a lot of he knew a lot of. Um, and for
0: listeners, just so you know, Riverdale uh, Country School and Ethical Culture Fieldston School, um, both Bronx campuses, are less than. Probably
2: a half a mile from one another. Yeah, it's like 0. 0.8 or 0. 0.7 mm-hmm. or something like that, just right down Filson Road. So yeah, we are driving to DC, to, uh, to New York, uh, to Boston, to different uh, fabric stores, like African fabric stores, because they have them in in, uh, in Philly. They have them uh, a little bit in South Philly, a little bit by the Italian market. If you go into DC, uh, up in Noma, New- they used to call it New York Avenue. Uh, up in Boston, Roxbury, like they'll have where the African immigrants are. So little Senegal, they'll just have a store. So we'll buy fabric. We take it to a tailor. We get stuff. We send it out to our friends. They really liked it, but we weren't sure anyone would buy it. We didn't make we sure we had something we could buy. It wasn't until our other friend Lauren said, hey, you guys should do a crowdfunding campaign. So we said, why not? So-
0: Can you repeat that again? You should do, Lauren said you should do what?
2: You should do a crowdfunding campaign. Like a go, Not like a GoFund, but IndieGo. We did it on indigo but like a Kickstarter. Um, and so spring of 2018, we did an IndieGoGo. And this was important because not just kind of getting money in the door, but because there's a perk system for if you donate at a certain level. And if you're selling a product, you can actually make the product a perk. So it's, it's like someone's buying the thing for you. So you essentially you're technically getting orders for your thing. So say you wanted to make microwaves, you can put it as a microwave. Hey, if you give me $50, you get a microwave. And that has a twofold effect. One, it brings the floor of the amount of money that you're getting up, but then it also forces you to go make that thing. Um, so our uh, campaign ended up going viral. We raised $20,000 in about five weeks. And based off the strength of that campaign, VFA said, hey, would you guys consider leaving your jobs, uh, moving to, we have an accelerator for, uh, it's like a business incubation program, they pay for your expenses for five months, you work on your business and see if you can make a business out of it. And at the end, you pitch them and then they might give you money. Uh, would you leave your jobs, move to Detroit and see if you can turn this product into a business. We said, again, why not? We, we like working with each other. We could have something here. Uh, if it doesn't work out, no harm, no foul. We go back to our jobs. So yeah, June of twenty, um, June of 2018, we moved to Detroit. We spent six months in the program, tinkering, figuring things out. We put out our first collection of clothes uh, September twentieth, two 2018. That was just cops and bandanas. Our second collection was April 2019. And then in December, uh, VFA invested $25,000 in us. Our uh, second uh, collection was April 2019. Our third collection was October 2019. And our fourth was supposed to come out April 2020 because COVID became more serious. It became tough to develop products. There were shortages of different things. There's still shortages of uh, nylon and things like that um, due to PPE. But yeah, there were all sorts of shortages. And so it was customers that reached out to us and said, hey, would you guys consider making masks from your fabric? And one of our manufacturers in Baltimore works with sportswear, he had some elastic. There was a major elastic shortage last year. Uh, That's actually also why our masks initially were behind the head and not unique, because there was a major elastic shortage. Um, and so yeah, and so it was. Customers had reached out to us and said, "Hey, would you do that?" And we thought we would sell, you know, maybe six or seven hundred masks to existing customers We didn't think it would be that serious. And then today, we sold nearly a half a million masks.
0: Okay, did did we get wow. that half million masks? Yeah. I have my D up masks sitting here. They're beautiful. Thank you so much. I mean, um, so it was it was people
1: driven, right? It was, people
2: it was people driven but i think that should also that all should also really tell you the scale of the problem that we had in this country and just tell you really how dire um things were um and i, I mean i said it before and i was like you, you really wish you were under uh, better circumstances um and just that that a uh, week of april was just very difficult um being able to um just being having to talk to the cdc and having to talk to our lawyers and Having to understand that stuff. It was it was frankly it was looking back it was a little bit painful because you knew you knew that this was going to be much more serious and this was going to uh last a lot longer and uh, as I said before you know we're in the people business um so we deal with customers every day it's very good it's very humbling that's actually the most important thing and the thing I like to preserve in my job is being able to interview customers so we can deal with unhappy customers uh, what really takes a toll on the team and i think if you talk to any small business owner what really pains us is when we get emails from schools when we get emails from nurses when we get emails um from nonprofits, when we get emails from reservations about people who aren't getting the things need, whether it's PPE, whether it's support whether it's money whether it's mass or there's things like that because those are questions we just keep coming in and i don't think people understand just how dire uh, the state of things were uh in the country and our master by no means you know they're not medical Great. they're not medical grade, they're supposed to be, they're not supposed to be substitute for PPE, you're supposed to make your own mask because we needed to preserve PPE for those who need it. But then, you know, we get photos of people delivering babies and masks, going to appointments and masks, doing all these things that the masks were designed to do. And that was a very, very tricky period for us.
1: Wow, saving lives. Um, And so this would be a Black-owned business, correct? Um, Because my next question would be, so obviously there's this boom, you're selling 500,000 masks. Um, this boom due to one crisis, which is COVID. Then another crisis arises, June, July,
2: um,
1: which has humongous implications economically for black owned businesses. Mm-hmm. How do you describe that feeling of, uh, you know, the brand taking on this new layer, taking on this new responsibility?
2: Truth be told, uh, mixed, I had mixed feelings um, the first, so one of the very uh, early things that we learned, one of the things we learned very early on when we talked to customers is they say, how do we find more businesses like yours? Um, and we thought, you know, better than emailing them and saying, hey, check this out, check that out. Uh, every Tuesday and Thursday, although it's now moving to Monday Thursday to accommodate more stuff. Every Monday and Thursday, we give away, uh, we buy from directly from a black owned business, black artist, um, black owned organization. You buy something, then we give it away on our site, and then we introduce uh, them to our audience. That, Killing two birds with one stone. One, you get to support them directly. Instead of saying, hey, go buy this, they might or might not buy this. It's like, hey, we'll, we'll just give you money. To give us whatever it is you're selling. And then has the twofold aspect of really introducing them to uh, our audience. And, and what's great now is I think because of what happened, let uh, some people know that if you can think of it, there is someone black who likely makes it. Um, and for people to see that there are all these black businesses, not just new ones, but ones going way, way back there. Even businesses people did not know were black owned or run or by black people or historically employed black people um, that I think people are learning about. And I love learning about those stories. Um, so on the one hand, uh, I had mixed feelings. I said, well, it's about time. And I really feel again for those people who had been working for such a long time because running a business can be very lonely and it can be very isolating and it can be very difficult and there are a lot of very good very solid black business owners wherever you go in this country even abroad now you see that too uh and then at the other hand and again you you just wish we were under better circumstances you wish someone didn't have to die for this sort of thing to happen because the stakes just aren't the same um i say to people and this ties into the mass issue very well it's like you know we're, we're a clothing brand There are much worse things you could do than sell clothing online. Um, But our business uh, isn't designed. There are a lot of things our business does that it's not designed to do. Um, And there are a lot of things, and you even learn this when you're in a program like Venture for America, when you're in a postgraduate program, or even when you're in a program like Prep for Prep. Like there are a lot of things that enrichment programs and education and things can't solve. Um, And that really affects people's lives in a very material way. Um, when we do things for VFA, when we do, we, Evan and I, my co-founder, we lecture at business, we talk at business schools. Uh, we talk at other schools because uh, again, it's like tough to heart. It's tough to find like a 26 and 27 year old who we trap their own business. Like if you go to a business school, you'll read about Nike, you'll read about elephants. They can seem kind of far away. So professors like that, Oh, someone they can relate to someone who's on the internet. But They'll always say, Oh, how do we get more entrepreneurs? How do we get more female entrepreneurs? How do we get more entrepreneurs and things like that? And uh, we always come back to the same two things. It's student debt and healthcare. Like before, we talk about running a business, any of that other stuff. Like you got to knock that out because so many people are starting from so far back because of the material conditions, because of the neighborhoods they come from, because of those things. And there are certain programs and things we have in place that aren't designed to meet those needs. So until we're meeting those, we're losing out on. I say all the time, there are much more talented, much uh, you know better people with better ideas who can't who can't go pursue those things because of where they come from, because of the kinds of things they've uh, experience. Um, so ultimately, I, I, I had very mixed feelings about last summer.
0: Well, you just brought up uh, the idea of being able to change policies, right? When you talk about healthcare care and student debt, do you see Diop moving in that direction to be able to impact policy? Uh,
2: only insofar as being able to support policies that do do that and uh, support people who do pursue those things. And and what we do with Diop is really try and draw a line in the sand and say, because we're a business, we can't do this. Um, I think one thing people aren't thinking about enough, um, um, apart from sustainability, that's a second question is, you know, we donate a lot of money and people commend us for donating money. The thing I have to stress to people is like, there's not very, there's very little accountability with some of this stuff. Evan and I are bootstrapped. We don't have a board. We don't report to anyone. We, you know, again, we try and do right by our customers. We try to do our best to be transparent. Um, we do our best to act in good faith, but, you know, just as soon as we, we can also, you know, we can also go donate money to people who make things worse. And so the reason I say that is, you know, not to be archer or anything, and really not to go after anybody, but really draw a line in the sand and say, look like, you know, there are public officials, there are means of recourse, like there are people who are, this is their job. And if they're not doing their job, we need other people to come and do their jobs. Because there are things that my business can't fix about your neighborhood. There are things my business can't fix about your school. We can. I say this all the time, even we work with some fantastic organizations. Um one we're gonna, I don't want to say who they are in particular because they might take us the wrong way. Um, but we work with an organization in Michigan that uh, provides art supplies uh to children who have uh who children who are in social housing for children who have been incarcerated. They provide art classes, they basically simulate the classroom experience. Now they do really great work. We love supporting them, but why why do why should we accept that children should be put in jail? Like, what we need to take a step back and really understand, like, why is that an acceptable thing? So to be able to both support that charity but, and support that initiative, but then also support the people that are trying to end putting children in prison so that we don't have to then simulate the classroom in a prison for a child is, is what's important to our business. And really drawing that line in the sand is very, very important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, community is big for you. We want to make sure that folks who go into your website. It's Perfect. where the ops uh, dot com And you have a really cool page called the Community Circle. Community tab, and then you get to the Community Circle. Um, a lot of beautiful, brilliant faces wearing beautiful and brilliant Diop wear. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Community Circle?
2: Sure. So again, when we first started out, one of the things that we learned was it uh, wasn't important that just that people see themselves on our brand, but also that they hear themselves. And so instead of trying to come up with a very convoluted or very highfalutin, sort of concept, we said, well, we'll look, every so often we just turn it over to them to talk about something that's important to them, uh, whether it's a customer, whether it's a partner, whether it's someone we work with. Um, we have a very diverse, very sensitive, very engaged audience uh, and customer base. But we think the thing that all you know unites them and brings them together is that they're all on a journey uh, and they all things that are meaningful them. Um, and so they all have things that they like to share. And so that's what we do on our site. Uh, we email it. It goes on our social pages where someone just talks about something that's important to them. Um, it could be uh, it could be about coming of age. It could be how it is they got into their job and their profession. It could be about their hobbies. It could be about their family. It could be about their communities. It could be anything. It's just what's important is that it's, it's meaningful to them and that they also identify that, hey, there are other people out there who might be different from me, but they're also like me and that they have this very particular perspective. And that's, well, that's one of the most fun things that we get to do and that's actually i'd say i always like to say that's my favorite part of the business is you know plenty again plenty of business is like tough and tricky and boring and stuff you're not going to remember but being able to connect with people um who you know aren't just creative but you know are really uh doing very interesting things and things you wouldn't expect and things you would never would have learned about um no fanfare day in day out um it's just just very meaningful to us because you know we again we're like them uh, and that's that's also how we run our business
0: I think Sam should be your next inner circle person.
1: Look it up. I don't know if That'd I be great. As, I don't know if I look as good as these people on the, uh, uh, the what I'm the looking people
2: at. Jeez. They supply those photos. So you have full you have full <laughs> editorial control. You get final cut.
1: Give me give me two weeks. Um Take your time. You, it's it's really beautiful. Um Thank and, you. and just energizing um to go through.
0: Well, we can't leave um, without you just making um, or giving us your thoughts on our independent schools, Riverdale in particular, um, their move towards more anti-racist curriculum. What are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, there, there has been some pushback by some folks in the community. Um, this idea of having to examine one's whiteness um, is troublesome. So what would you say, uh, and just so you know, Dominic has doubled down. He's like, listen, this is not going anywhere. This is the work that we're doing. It's, it's part of our mission as a school mind character community. What are your, what are your thoughts on the movement towards more anti-racist curriculum?
2: Um, again, I'm, on the one end, I'm, I'm happy to see it. I'm happy again, Riverdale being fearless, really pushing things forward, um, being progressive, you know, being the the kind of place that we say we want our, our kids to attend school. Uh, I'm proud to see and I And that being uncomfortable, and like that's part of the work, like that's what part of what thinking about whiteness is and like the privilege of not having to think about whiteness because so many of your colleagues, so many of the people, you know, think about whiteness every day. Like how James Baldwin said, like white people know white people, Black people know white people better than white people know themselves. Cause you have to, it's a matter of life and death. Um, When my father first came to this country, he always said the two things that shocked him most about America were A, how much people love free parking and B, uh, how little Americans knew about their history. Because he would go into class, he'd come from he'd come from, Sen- he'd come from Senegal, and then he had spent two years in France. And then he's in class, and he's just talking about American history. And his professors would say, "How do you know so much about American history?" And he'd look back at them, shocked. He'd say, "How do you know so little? I come from Senegal. When America sneezes, it's when America does anything, it's a really big deal." And he said, like, "Talk to any of the immigrant people in this class, and they'll tell you they'll give you chapter and verse about this country and what this country and Even my mom said the same thing. They'll give you chapter and verse about this country and what it means and what it's done. And if you don't know these things, it could mean your life. Um, and so. I think that's part of the work and really sitting with that and really interrogating it, not just in a school setting, but in a global setting and, and explaining the world um, explaining the world as it is to the students. I, I think that's part of an educator's remit. Uh, I think it's fully within bounds uh, to explore. I think it's fully in bounds for people to object, but I, I would also tell them like, well, that's part of the work. Um, and that's part of taking this sort of thing seriously. And to be honest, I'm glad there's objections because it means they're taking it seriously. And it means that they're thinking critically about the thing, which is always the thing. And um, to kind of circle back to my business, That's also what we try and do. Um, We didn't touch on it directly, but we have a page on cultural appropriation. We also tried to say, we didn't make this page to placate white people or placate anyone else. A, because other people also have that have these concerns who aren't white. Um, but B, also because like the most important thing is that you're thinking critically and you're engaged with this thing. Batik fabric has existed for about a thousand years before us and it wants just long after us. We're just stewards and this is our chapter. What's important to us is that you're thinking critically and that you're joining a conversation and that you feel you can join this conversation and talk to the right people and access to the right resources. We can't tell you what to do, you're an adult. Um, but you know, Part of part of doing better is like knowing better. And the way to know better is that we make it more accessible and that we make it more important that we have these conversations and that people feel comfortable enough to have these conversations. Cause I mean, these things weren't happening in my time, but I'm glad in such a short time they are happening in my time. So overall, I'm I'm happy to see it.
1: Yeah, and I, we really appreciate not only um, you talking about cultural appreci- appropriation, um, but also the context and the color you gave to the products that you put out and the history behind it and just that sense of responsibility, which I think is often um, missing from the fashion industry, right? Just having that res- the, the responsibility you must take on when selling culture in a way. So
2: thank you. And um, so, um, Look, I mean, we can we can do it without. Um the support um, of other, of other people, people like you, um, again, we're, we're just very privileged that we get to, you know, try things and do things. And again, we always say, people ask us, you know, what's your vision, what's the mission, what's next. We, we really do stop and start with, you know, products that fit your lifestyle and a brand that reflects the world you live in a real emphasis on the world you live in, because, you know, your perspective and your journey is very important to us. Um, and we always say like the more, the more people that feel, like there is something for them, whether that is a platform, whether that is a product, whether that is a place to go to school. Like the the better the better the world is, the better place this is. Uh, and if that's not us, you know, if even if that's not with us, um, just, just kind of setting that example and trying to push that forward and making room for other people to do that is very very important to us.
0: Belonging, the other word that Riverdale has adopted, right?
2: One hundred percent
0: sense of community and belonging.
2: That's the secret sauce.
1: I'm rolling my eyes. I'm sorry. I did not go to Riverdale.
0: (laughs) No, I respect. You're in the room with two people who did, and Mm -hmm. so don't worry. You got, you got that Falcon energy.
2: Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Thank you so much. I I I I learned about you and your relationship to Riverdale through the assembly, and I was like. Diop! oh my goodness i have been buying those masks
2: those have been the best some of the best emails i've got all i'm not going as back is 57 67 87 just seeing the class years and people talk it's so and well number one so many of them are still in new york which is fantastic to see and so lovely and even from uh, other schools people from collegiate people from poly people from all sorts of different places and the support's just been uh so wonderful because we run around like headless chickens like looking at all sorts of stuff and so it's it's easy to it's easy to like, forget that it's happening. So we, you know, we feel very, we feel very flattered, you know, that people, we make something that people like and that people really respond to and that people really engage with. We we just feel really lucky, really fortunate. And it's just been, the support has been from alumni, from teachers, from current students, um, from people I haven't seen or talked to years. it's just been fantastic. It's been so wonderful. The best is when people send me Christmas or holiday cards with their families and everyone's wearing a mask. That's just the greatest. Oh, and they okay. say to their parents, okay. like he went to, they said to their parents, he went to, he went to Riverdale with me. It's like, yeah, I me mean, went to Riverdale, and then they're okay, happy about they it. Yeah, arms. my mom, my mom will go to Zabar's and tell anyone who listens and say, but when she sees that, she'd say that my son made that. And so that's
1: Zabar's. I love it. I love it. And what's what's coming down the pipeline for you all?
2: Uh, what is coming down? Oh. This is what I ask Uh What's coming down the pipeline? Uh, tote bags okay. uh, in two weeks. Two weeks.
0: Just in time for summer. Going to the summer.
2: Beach. Uh, we're working on cooking aprons. Um, we're working on cooking aprons. We were very lucky in February. Um, we were able this. to. We were able to raise. Uh, yeah, we were able to raise uh, fifty thousand dollars for a bunch of different organizations. We also did our first housewares collaboration in February. We put out pillows. Um, we're hoping to put those online very soon, and then also over the summer we they might let us work on a chair. We'll see how that goes. tote bags, cooking aprons. Uh, and then uh, athletic shorts, both running shorts and tennis shorts. And this will also be the first time that we split, that we do split by gender and we do do men's and women's. And then also uh, with the next collection, which is to say new prints, we're trying to move into extended sizes Um, The two, and I think broader as broader business goals is sort of being more sustainable. You know, we're not at a scale yet in which we can really impact things. There are a bunch of steps we take to be more sustainable. We ship in biodegradable compostable packaging. We manufacture in the United States. We work with quantities under a thousand. We're trying to Put together, an upcycling program, and then the other thing is more inclusive sizing. Uh, we only go up to 2x right now. We'd like to get up into the 3x, the 4x, and the 5x, and so we're trying to see how we can do that but still kind of maintain uh, the price integrity. And then, same thing with sustainability, it's so being more sustainable, but again, like really trying to stick uh, at that price. So, yeah, that's that's and what's coming down the pike.
0: Mapate, in addition to um. Buying some merch because I'm about to get some shorts. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're unisex or your shorts. Yeah, unisex? shorts are unisex. Yes. Okay, perfect. That's smart. Yeah. Um, but in addition to purchasing merch, how can our audience listeners support the work that you do in community? What 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 can we do to support your
2: work? Um, the two things I would say we get plenty of support as it is. Um, support Black owned businesses. Uh, Support businesses locally, above all, I can't, I really can't stress that enough. Um, we feel like we, you know, we had 150, 200,000 odd customers in about 40 or 50 countries. Um, which it, it, it's really great, but you know there really is someone locally like us who could use your help, and it might not be a business, it could be uh, a shelter, it could be a mutual aid organization. Uh, that's how you can really help us, and I think really advance our values is really supporting someone locally, because there is someone in your neighborhood. It could even be you one day, who is working independently, who is trying to get something off the ground, who is a part of your community and is doing something in your community um, that can be very important and very impactful and very meaningful to that person, but also the people they're connected to. So I think really within the spirit of what we're doing, that's that's really what I ask is whether it's a mutual aid organization, whether it's a black owned business, uh, whether it's a, a business owned by people of color, whether it's a business owned by women that you patronize and that you support them and that you buy locally and, and that you support and that you you do that. And, uh, and that should also be further encouragement that if you yourself are working on something um, that there that there will be support for that when the time comes, like there will be support for you too when you need it and not just from Diop, but from other people too.
0: Thank you for supporting us. thank you thank you for having me period you lading um we're, we're definitely local when it comes to uh talking about the black and brown experience in independent schools and the support of that and advocating for our young scholars so you are a young scholar that has done real good and is continuing to do good for the community. So we really thank you so much for your time today. Mpate. Thank you
2: thank you for having me. Again, just the Riverdale, you know, the Riverdale connection. Um yeah. it's it, it just invaluable and it, it, it's just great that it just continues to be um it's something that I can continue to have and something I can continue to treasure and really foster and just really grows with time. It's 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 a real privilege.
0: So apparently it was a huge coup for us to book Mapate at the same time that he's rolling out a summer lineup. I really hope that this is reaching students and their families who may feel pressured to pursue traditional careers. Independent schools come with a huge price tag, but you can't allow that investment
1: to dictate your future. 100%, Gina. And I don't know about you, but I am just so inspired by how Mapate is just so authentically himself, even back to his Riverdale days. That's thanks in large part to his family, right? His family that fostered that self-confidence. It starts at home, but clearly these schools can also play a part.
0: I think our schools can do a better job fostering cultural inclusivity, and not just through dress code or cultural days, but through holding spaces that allow for thoughtful inquiry. If we go back, to mapate in the inquiry and response to what his shirt represented culturally
1: it became a dialogue that turned into a business yes yes um and before we go it does behoove us to acknowledge Derek Chauvin's guilty verdict um it was an incredibly chilling moment for many of us who've waited practically a year for justice to be served and Personally, I was shocked by the outcome, um, but also disappointed by my shock. The justice system did the bare minimum for George Floyd. Um, And I'm just, you know, I, I didn't even expect that to happen.
0: I feel you on that level of expectation, Sam, you know, being hopeful yet holding hope at bay based on the countless not guilty verdicts. But this verdict was different um, yet and still, it's the basement and not the ceiling of the systemic work that we have to do. And yeah, thank God, you know, it came out the way it did. My, my nerves are a little less frayed. Um, you know, I'm committed to this work and, and of social justice and it's a purpose of mine specifically through the lens of independent school education. Um, what I wanna know is where do we go from here? What do the conversations look like in the classroom following the verdict? And what policies will we reevaluate and reform for anti-racist, equitable, inclusive, and safer school communities to belong to? You know, because our, our black and brown kids need to see that they matter and their lives matter. And this verdict was a tiny but crucial moment that validates that. Yes,
1: yes. Gina, we did it again. Yes, we did. Thank you for listening to another episode of Articulating, an independent school podcast. Join us again in another two weeks and meet another amazing guest who's navigated and negotiated independent school culture. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.